Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Oh, so funny that when his presence comes in, nothing else matters. It's like it, everything seems so trivial. It's like the Lord is just like taking me on this journey. And it's just like a journey of getting acquainted with my insignificance so that I can be acquainted with my significance. And it's just like, it feels so weird. (laughs) It just feels so weird sitting at a computer and crafting a sermon anymore. Because he's so much more than that. He's so much more than our little structures and our agendas and our orders of services. And And it's just like, you know, we hear the scripture all the time, let everything be done decent and in order. But when's the last time somebody's come in and we've had to say, we're not drunk as you suppose? Let's take both of those realities. When's the last time the church was so drunk with glory that the world had to peer in and go, what is going on? And days earlier, those that elected to pin Jesus to a tree cry out and say, how can we be saved? going to take something more than some sermons and some worship services. It's going to take the glory of God. And I just feel like the Lord is saying, do not become content in where you're at. Because even in our services, we can slip into a model or a mode of consistency. And we don't allow room for God to do the new thing that he might want to do. That as good as it might be, God's not done. God's not done. And really, we're just getting started. But we've got to walk in this reality of childlikeness. That's the issue with sometimes is is walking in maturity. Is sometimes we can look at how far we've come and get prideful in how far we've come. And we can look at the ones at the altar like those poor little young babes. And don't, we don't realize that those are the babes that actually get in and get deliverance and actually move into the things of God. I don't care how many miracles you've seen. The generation of the Israelites that saw the miracles didn't even get to go into the promised land. A generation born that hasn't seen but walks in childlikeness will inherit the land. The ones that have seen and try to walk off past experience will not enter into this new thing that God wants to do. I'm preaching to you prophetic today, okay? This isn't going to be normal sermon time. That the Lord is calling us to childlikeness. And I don't care how far along you are with the Lord and how mature you feel like you are. There's always some chaff that needs to fall off. 
every mature piece of grain, every season, has to shift and shed the chaff in order to be useful into the next season and to feed another generation. And so I don't care how mature you are, there's still some things that need to come off. Okay? Every orange that comes to fruition has to be peeled before it can be juiced, okay? And God's getting ready to juice some people, okay? But he can't juice you until he gets the peeling off, okay? Now, the peeling is necessary because the peeling protects you in the pre it protected you in the previous season that you were in. And some of you got wounded and you put up some calluses. Now, that callus was okay for a season because it protected you so that you could go on without getting hurt again. But in the next season and the new thing God wants to do, you're not going to be able to trust the callus because it's going to keep God from penetrating into the heart and to getting to the root of the thing that he wants to do in your life. So you have to remove the callus from the previous season and say, God, here is fresh, supple skin again that can take on the new thing that you want me to walk into and the thing you want me to do. So it's this constant cycle of, of walking and reminding ourselves that we're childlikeness. There'll be times where I'll really feel like I come a long way. Am I the only real folk in here this morning? There's times I think, man, I've really come a, a good way, you know, and I look back. And then God will do something. And has he ever did anything and humbled you? <laughs> Then you realize you're not so big old boy after all. And, and, you, and, you, and, he'll, and he does that. He's so kind to do that so that we'll walk in this childlikeness that is always ready to receive the thing that he wants us to walk in. So God is calling us to this, this place of just uh, to become like children again. To become like children. And uh, it, it'll look foolish at times, but that's okay. Um, that's okay. The key is that we're walking with him and that we're in relationship with him. So don't be afraid of the new thing that God wants to do. Because God wants to do some, some really incredible things. And, and, and I think that um, it's kind of like, where do we go from here? Lord, help us, God. Help us to navigate. I, I just don't want to go to form or, or ritual here, God. I, I really want to just follow your heart. I really just want to follow your heart. I want to know you. I want to know you more. Never want to get satisfied. Never want to get complacent with your spirit, oh God. Jesus, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I feel like there's something that, that God wants to establish with us, and, and I want you to understand when I say this word, it's going to seem high and lofty, but it's really not the eternal purposes of God. Because that sounds really high and lofty, but it's actually really, really simple. It's like God created the earth, but why did he create the earth? Why did he choose a garden? Why, would, why did he do it the way he did? Well, the Garden of Eden was really this uh, high place. It was a garden on top of a mountain. And it was a place to where heaven and earth would intersect. And so what God was really up to is to create a space that he could fill and dwell with people. Right. Amen. Like that is the theme of all scripture. 
Everything that God was doing on the earth was to remove any separation that had gotten between us and him so that he could actually be with us and dwell with us. So we'll say it like this. God created space so that he could fill it. That the reason why God creates empty things is because he wants to interject the life of who he is, the DNA of what he is, who he is, inside of that empty thing. So it takes on the personality and identity of God and begins to walk in that reality and reflect to the rest of the earth, what does he look like? This is why Jesus is cocooned in the flesh. He's, he's God become flesh. Why? So that people could know what the Father looked like. So that people wouldn't have a doubt of the Father's heart for them. Like that's why Jesus, he said, everything I do, I do it because I saw the Father doing it. Everything I say, I don't say anything unless I've heard the Father say it. He's moving people into the reality of God has created you so that the Father could fill you, that you could walk in the identity and DNA of who he is and reflect him to everybody else so that you could say, I don't do anything unless I've heard the Father do it or seen the Father do it. I don't say anything unless I've heard the Father say it. It's that God would create empty space so that he could fill it. Why does he want to fill it? He wants to fill it so that he could be in fellowship with us. So Genesis 1 not just a science experiment or a science lesson in the textbook, Okay. Genesis 1 is this, God creates light on the first day, but then on the fourth day, he creates things that would reflect the light. So he creates the thing, but then creates the other thing that would be filled with the thing. On the second day, he creates the waters and the heavens. Well, guess what he does on the fifth day? He fills it with life. Fish of the sea, birds of the air. Then on the third day, he creates dry ground. Do you see that what's happening here? It's to lead us to the logical conclusions of the patterns and nature of God. He creates dry ground. Hmm, I wonder what he's going to do. He's going to fill it with life. And he creates the land animals and then creates man on the sixth day. So we have God creating empty spaces in day one, two, and three. And then God filling them in day four, five, and six. That he hasn't created you to leave you as an empty space. But what you've got to be willing to do as empty space is submit to the word of the creator so that he can fill you with the good things of God and you could begin to take on the DNA of God in yourself. That, that when ancient Hebrews looked at the language of God brooding over the waters, the picture was a womb. And the Spirit of God brooding was like a husband brooding over that which he was about to insert life into. That it was chaos, but then chaos gets put into order when the Father starts speaking. I can remember speaking to my daughters when they were inside Emily's stomach and 
I remember speaking to them and praying over them. And it was so that they would know my voice before they were even formed. While they're being formed, they're learning my voice. And the vibrations of my voice are hitting every part of their being. So that they know that they're loved before they exit the womb. And this is the love that's in the heart of the Father before the foundations of the world. It was the love that he was speaking over that which was in process of being created. It's that God is not afraid of your chaos and empty space. But you have to position yourself to receive the word so that you could be filled with him. That the word of God is not separate from God. But the word of God has the DNA of God in it. So whenever the word of God is received as a seed, you know what the Greek word for seed is in reference to the word of God? Sperma. I'm not trying to be provocative. That's just what it is. So when the word became flesh and came into the world, what do you think he was trying to do? He was trying to infuse creation with life so that the new purposes of God and new creation could be born in the earth. That the story of scripture, sorry guys, it's a chick flick. I know, I wish it was a, yeah. Well, at the end, it turns to a war movie. So, yeah, we can kind of get behind that. But But it's all geared to a husband preparing a bride. A husband preparing a bride so that they could be in covenant together. So it takes on this imagery of really a love story. Whereby the process of love begins to really be on display. The consummation of all things. That the most private and shameful place of the groom, be mature with me here, but it's the story would go into the most private and shameful place of the bride and would create life. So that Jesus takes his most shameful place, death on the cross, stripped naked, bloody, beaten, And takes it and puts it in your most shameful place, your sin, your disobedience, your rebellion. He takes his most shameful place and puts it in the bride's most shameful place. And a family is being born. Some of you cringed. That's okay. You won't next time. That God is... Not afraid of your most shameful place. 
And you know when he's touched the most shameful place because you can't settle those folk down. It's where we all start. As we start as just children that have been forgiven by God, overwhelmed with gratefulness. And we can't think of doing anything else but obeying him. But then life happens and things happen and hurts happen and pains happen. And we start to leave that first love reality. And we start to feel that we've matured beyond being childlike in him. And in our text today, that's what had happened to this church. Is This church had left the eternal purpose for which they even existed. The church only exists to let the Lord love on them so that they can show the world how loving the Lord is. <laughs> oh. The church exists to be a bride that Jesus can honor and love that doesn't have boundaries, but that has this healthy exchange of relationship. That's why it becomes the chief principle of everything that God tries to describe is Paul's trying to figure out, how can I tell y'all? Well, it's kind of like a body, and there's different parts in a body, but then how, what other? Oh, okay, here's a, here's a way, here's a way. Uh, it's like a man and a woman getting married, and they're two separate realities, but somehow they become one flesh, a mystery. Every married folk said, that is a mystery. <laughs> We're still trying to figure out. <laughs> it becomes the chief example and becomes the story of Revelation that Paul, or that John rather, takes up and runs with. It's that he's telling the story of a, a great wedding feast. <laughs> Telling the story of this beautiful thing. And the church in Ephesus, they weren't slouches, okay? They knew how to not tolerate evil. They knew when a false teacher had come to town. They understood what it was to even reject these that most of the known ancient church had, had received that Paul had to come back and write about, especially into the Corinthian church, these people that were claiming to be super apostles. I mean, you know, we still got some of them claiming to be super apostles, right? They were even able to put away them. I think the hardest thing for a church to do is to put that away which needs to be put away and say the hard thing, Right? So they were doing like the hardest thing, the, the things that's hardest for me because I want to accept and love everybody. So they were doing all the hard things, but, but then Jesus, he has this conviction statement that he's trying to, to deal with them. And, and aren't you glad that, that Jesus won't leave us where we're at 
even though it might be better than where we were. He's always calling us into deeper levels of truth and relationship with him. He could have left them alone and said, man, you're all right. You're doing better than the most. I'm out of here. But Jesus says, no, I'm so jealous for my bride that I can't stand anything that's going to down the road get in between me and them and is going to stop the intimacy that I want to carry on throughout all the generations. So he's willing to have the hard conversation and risk the bride walking away. So he says to them, I have this against you. You have departed. The word departed there from your first love, the word departed in the Greek is aiphemai. And it means the same word as divorce. It's like he's saying, you have divorced me. You have divorced your first love. Verse 5, he says, and therefore remember from what high state that you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds that you did at first. If not, I will come to you, hear this church, because we're not exempt, and remove your lampstand from its place. That is if you do not repent. That God is not willing to have a business arrangement marriage. That God's not looking for a business partner. He's looking for a lover and a bride that is connected with him and will have the conversation with him when it's time to have the conversation. He would rather have communication than he would have a vibrant church in the earth pretending that everything is okay. And he says, you've forgotten your, your first love. You've left your first love. Which tells me you could do a bunch of things right and not be walking in a first love reality. And you notice what he said. Repent why so you can be returned to the high place. What was the Garden of Eden? A garden on a mountain, a place where heaven and earth intersected. Don't forget about the high place of fellowship. What's he saying? The highest place you can get in God is fellowship and intimacy with him. And we think as the church, especially in Western church, we think the highest place we can get is in the theological realms of our mind. But sometimes this happens. Our mind walks in a greater truth than our heart has stayed in a childlike state to begin to walk in that truth. So our head grows, but our heart looks like the Grinch. Three sizes too small. I'm about to preach on the Grinch right here. But when the Grinch sees the sun, I'm talking about the Jim Carrey Grinch. When the Grinch sees the sun, his heart grows three sizes too big. That we've got 
to find a way to elevate our heart above our head and walk in the reality and love of God and not let our mind outdo and outpace the process and the growth of our heart and our soul in Him. Because I can watch a bunch of sermons, I can watch a bunch of YouTube videos, I can sit around and pal with, around with people that are way smarter than me, and I can preach to you a level that my heart has not got to yet. And so will I allow God to deal with my heart first, and then begin to put it in my head? Some of you aren't preaching and you're not telling the story. You know why you're not? Because you think you're not smart enough. And God said, quit elevating your head over your heart and begin to let your heart be the thing that is, propels you. Give me a dummy that can say Jesus and it's got a wind in a pot. Bring no theological graduate in here to sterilize us. And to... If I wanted a bucket of ice water on, thrown on me, I'd win the Super Bowl. I'd have been a coach. That's the issue of the last days. The issue of the last days is that the love of many will... Somebody pulled some King James. Wax cold on me. Okay, I'll wax with you. That's wax. That word grow cold or wax cold in the Greek, is the, the picture is that you would pick up a spoon of hot liquid and go, right, right. until it was the temperature that you could palate it. But just to be honest, if I'm not willing to allow the Lord to come in and do the work that he needs to do in my heart. I might have the words right, but all my preaching will do will refrigerate all of you until the whole room is lukewarm. And then we're being spewed out of the king's mouth. That when wickedness abounds, you can't let your badge of honor be that you fight evil really good. Man, pull down strongholds and speak truth. I'm not saying that. But you do it to the level that your heart loves that person and loves the sinner and loves and begins to see and move in a healthy way. God says, remember the high place that you walked in. That God is looking for a covenant marriage. And we've all been there. I remember one time it was like a week had passed or something. And how many guys are, is any other guys in here just oblivious sometimes to what's really happening? Especially in the context of your marriage. But then you start watching your at, wife act different, and you're like, she's kind of acting weird. And it was one of them things where, and here's my, always my tester. Is this okay? I didn't even run this by you, but it's okay. She doesn't know where I'm going. 
So uh, that's why I bought a comfortable couch. So. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But my, but my uh, tester is always to see how she feels. I'll, I'll like just embrace her or something. And if it feels like an ice cube, <laughs> then I know. I either got to run or like say I'm sorry. Something's got to give here. And she just looked at me one time and she just said, do you realize it's been a week since we've actually conversated and just shared our heart with one another? I was like, do you realize it's been a week since we've even embraced and just... And I'm going on, you know, I'm doing ministry. We're, we're both doing ministry, counseling folks, loving on folks. I'm, bills are getting paid. Everything's good. And, but, but it's not. Because we're not business partners trying to run a household. First and foremost... We're lovers that have to love each other in order for everything else to fall into place. So what I'm saying is you can be doing everything right. There wasn't abuse going on. Bills are getting paid. The kids are getting to practice. They're getting to school. They're getting their homework done. Everything is good on the outside. But there's something about the intimacy in the heart that wasn't connected. So we might as well not even have been married. So Jesus says, I'm not going to just provide for you and just, and just make everything go great in the household when your heart is not connected to mine. And so Holy Spirit comes into the church in Ephesus and says, I know you've come a long way. I know you don't tolerate evil. I know you'll shut down the super apostles. I know you know the Bible frontwards and backwards. I know you've got a Bible degree hanging on the wall, but your heart has gotten cold from the eternal purpose that I created you for. And that is that we would be together for all eternity. That's what it's about. So sometimes you gotta hit what I call a divine reset. And you just, you know when something ain't working, you just restart it anymore. It's like the first thing, they're like, did you turn it off and turn it back on? And you're like, yeah fool, I did that, that's what I do every time. I wouldn't have called you. Don't y'all get holy in here on me. Y'all know y'all get mad when people tell you that. <laughs> oh my gosh, I got my wife. She come back and couldn't find her phone charger and I asked her if she looked in her purse. <laughs> oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? See, we just, sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. So Holy Spirit comes in and Corrects him and says, look here, I can't let your candle stand stand up. I don't care how good the budget is. I don't care how good the vision is. I don't care how full the church is. I don't care about that. What I care about is who's entered into the conversation with me as a bride and a bridegroom. It's just that tender place. You remember when you first got saved? 
and you just loved everybody? <laughs> I got any? Okay, no, no real folks. Okay, that's okay. I'll be the scapegoat for everyone. Put my life on display. The return to our first love. Man, I can remember I first had gotten saved and, and Micah was actually instrumental in helping me navigate. Because how many of you know your 20s are tough? Your 20s are about tempering your desires. Then your 30s are about figuring out the purposes. And then I'm finding the 40s are you live out the purposes of the foundations that you laid in your 20s and your 30s. And then Tommy Tenney told me your best years are going to be your 50s and 60s. So I'm like, whoo, bring it on. I'm ready. Come on. Let's go, dude. And um, so single, red-blooded American male in your 20s that had come from a lifestyle. My parents were awesome, but I just had rebelled and turned. And so I had this encounter with the Lord that was just powerful. And so Michael just really took me up under his wing. And, and, and the most valuable thing that he showed me, you know, the most valuable thing was he said, whenever I encounter an obstacle or a problem, I turn on worship music and I get along with the Lord and I just hear from him. I said, man, I can do that. So I started doing that. And, and you know what? Every time there's an obstacle or a problem, his presence doesn't always solve everything perfectly how I think it is, but his presence always comes down and does something transformative in my heart in some kind of way to where the obstacle, whether it goes away or not, is not so big anymore. Like some of us are trying to get God to change our circumstance and he's just trying to change us. Like that's why you keep going through stuff. It's the only way he can get you through the doors. Sorry. <clears throat> Pastor talk. I got too real. Let's have a focus. Okay. Um, so yeah, I would just... And so I create, so I begin to get an ear to hear the voice of the Lord. And so that was shifting that God actually would speak and put something on your heart. So I thought, man, here's this big old book that everybody talks about called the Bible. Um, I'm going to try to read it through. And so I started reading the Bible through every year. It was like these just simple things. And, and it was like the Lord would speak to me through the scriptures and show me things. And I'd be like, oh, wow, this is. This is just incredible. So I had these kind of two elements kind of, kind of started to, to work in me, and they started building this culture of, of the Word of God guiding my life and the Spirit of God empowering my life and the voice of God speaking to me to give me divine direction and to guide me into all truth and just some incredible things. And so it started off, it just kept going into deeper and deeper uh, of that culture of my personal life where it got to where um, I would get my, on my four-wheeler not to ride. I used to just ride my four-wheeler to ride my four-wheeler, but I would ride my four-wheeler to go to this high place. It was this power line where there was a trail, and I would go up to this high place, and I would turn off the four-wheeler, and I would just sit there, and I would just pray. It was where I preached my first sermons. It was on a power line. And I would do the whole bit. I'd do the altar call. I'd say, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I would. 
And then I would pretend I was laying hands on people. It was like this imaginary church building where I could be myself. Because I wasn't in the place I could do that in front of folks yet. So I had to do it by myself so I could get used to doing it in front of others. And so I would sit there and I would do, do things like that. And uh, God would just begin to just put this cry in my heart. And it was just creating space for, for intimacy. It was creating space for God to do big things in my heart. And all it was was just carving out time. Doing things that seemed to be just, just really, really small. I remember during worship services, the Lord would challenge me. I really dealt with the fear of men. And the only way to break the fear of men is to push past and do it anyway. I know we want this download of supernatural boldness that just makes us do it. Not going to happen. Like your knees will be knocking and you will be shivering like a leaf on a tree, but you learn to do it anyway, okay? That's the way confidence and courage comes. It comes with trusting God even though you don't see a way of how to trust him. So I remember in worship services, I was always afraid to lift my hands. So boy, I'd grip that pew, look like an eagle's claw. <laughs> and I'd feel the spirit on me and I'd be like, And then I was just like, you know what, forget it. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I'm not looking. Maybe people's looking at me. I don't know. I don't care. I'm just not going to open my eyes. See, it sounds pitiful. But God was teaching me how to walk in first love. And so then I got to where I could raise my hands. So then during a worship service, the Lord would say, provoke me to go to the altar. What? Uh, okay. So during a worship service, I would go down to the altar. And one time I went down to the altar, and I don't know if just my obedience, just the glory of God came down in the church. And I came up from the altar, and the altar area was full. And I train wrecked the service. Like the preacher didn't even get to preach. And I thought, wow, that was pretty cool. And so then I did it next week. And then when I looked up, I was the only one at the altar. So I'm learning lessons. What? You can't formulize God and put him in your neat little box. <laughs> so there's like all these like crazy weird things that I'm doing, but it's like God is just stretching me. I went from reading three chapters of the Bible a day to 20 chapters of the Bible a day. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but I'm just saying that was the journey I was on. It was just like... I just couldn't get enough. I just kept feasting and feasting and fe feasting. It got to where God was dealing with me on my generosity. And so every other check that I got from my job, I would sign the back of it and put it in the offering plate. <laughs> that got quiet in here. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to touch your money, okay? You wouldn't want him to do that. <laughs> Don't worry. Your heart, not here. You know, so. But it was just like, there was nothing I wouldn't lay at his feet. <laughs> and there was nothing that was going to control me. And if it started to, I just gave it back to him. 
I remember going to the Walmart parking lot and street witnessing, like Miss Doris. <laughs> and uh, some of you might be the fruit of my Malvern Walmart parking lot ministry, maybe. I don't know. Uh, probably not. It was pretty pitiful. <laughs> I was just naive, you know. But I was just full of him. I remember I was watching a TV preacher one time, and he was like, sow a $1,000 seed. I was like, man, I need to sow a $1,000 seed so I can be spiritual. I ain't got a 1000 bucks, So I saved $1,000 so I could give a $1,000 seed. <laughs> like, so I went to my pastor. <laughs> he probably fell out. Like, how did you get this, first of all? <laughs> you know? But anything we can't lay at the feet of Jesus has mastered us. And anything that we can lay at his feet, we have mastered. And so I just, so I've kind of had this thing where me and him several times, God's just told us, sow a $1,000 seed, whether we had it or not, whether it hurt or not. And it's so crazy because just a, just a month ago, we sowed another kind of extravagant. The Lord started giving him this word about extravagant giving, about like, dude, it was almost laughable to think that we could outgive God or that there's a meter on our giving that God won't reward or, or touch. And so, so we've been kind of talking about this, and it's kind of become an ethic that we're kind of talking about with the staff. And, and so about a month ago, we sowed a big seed, and it was kind of one of them that kind of hurt, you know what I'm saying? But it was just like, what's too much for Jesus? You know? And so we've just learned that if God tells us to do it, it's just, and this isn't a setup for an offering, okay? I'm just, I'm just sharing my heart with you, okay? So everybody relax. <laughs> And so then it was crazy. So I had this in the sermon because I wanted to share just first love, what it might look like or what it looked like for me. And, and this week, a great friend of mine came by and said, the Lord has been dealing with me for two weeks. So here, I don't know what's going on, but I know God's in this. And this great friend of mine gave me $1,000 seed. Now, now here's the thing. The $1,000 is not the big deal. Like that's chump change for God. Here's what's the big deal. I was more excited that he had heard from the Lord than I was the amount of money that was put in my hand. So the Lord was showing me, Matt, I can trust you with the $1,000 seed now. So get ready. God's getting ready to bless some of your socks off because he's getting ready to let you know that you're going to be able to trust him and you're going to be able to trust us with extravagant giving. I'm just telling you. It's weird to talk about money, but people get weird, but I'm just telling you, this is the word of the Lord. So be ready and begin to open your heart for him to bless you in ways you can't even believe or even imagine that he's going to be orchestrating some really cool things. I felt like I was supposed to, to share that. And so me and my wife, that was when I was single, you know? So it was like, when you're single, you have like a lot of like, what do we call it? Disposable time yeah. and disposable income, <laughs> right? Um, 
So like now, our duties and roles look different, right? It's not like we're laying around seeking the Lord all the time. We just can't do that. We're busy. We're in perpetual motion. But what it does mean is we never elevate the ministry or we never elevate our effectiveness. We never elevate our duties above our time with the Lord. And if the Lord says, pause, I need you to get along with me, we pause and get along with him. If he doesn't, we just keep, we just stay the course. And so with kids, we're still rushing kids. At 2 o'clock today, Kennedy's got softball practice. I'm going to be running there. Then at 530, we got small group. We're going to be running to our small group. And then you know what? We're going to be wrestling and fighting, trying to get them in bed in time. for we're, All that is still there. But just because our duties and roles change doesn't mean we lose the first love reality that Jesus is preeminent in all things in our lives. So this is the heart of King David, and, and we'll, we'll close. We, we'll get you guys out of here, but this was King David's heart. In Psalm 27, verse 4, when he said, One thing I ask and one thing I desire. The one thing I'm looking for is that I could dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty and his splendor. It's like King David had a season as a shepherd that afforded him some time to write songs and to be in his presence. Then King David had a season as Saul's general of the army. That season looked different. But his heart didn't change. His heart still wanted to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever. And then King David had a season of king. You think he was getting pulled on as king? Yeah, but you know what? His heart didn't change. He stayed in the one thing reality to where he, all he wanted to do at the end of the day, it wasn't all he did, but it was at the desire and the motive at the baseline of his heart was that I could be in the house of the Lord, be in his presence, and gaze upon his beauty for all my days. That's why there's more words written about King David in the whole of the Old Testament than any other figure. The second is Moses, and it's not even close. Only David in the entire scriptures, nine times it's mentioned, and David inquired of the Lord. Nobody else can say that in the Old Testament or New Testament. David inquired of the Lord. There were times he had to hit pause and say, God, where am I really at? God, what's really going on? God, is my heart really warm to you? Or am I stuck in this religious mode that looks good because it looks as righteous as everybody in my surroundings? But, but is it really unto you holy and fully? Yeah. It's the reason why King Saul said, don't take your kingdom from me. And it's why King Solomon said, give me wisdom. But it's why King David said, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. <laughs> Some of us are praying, don't take my kingdom, God. And he's laughing. Because what you're calling a kingdom is a shanty. It's a man-made shack. 
And you'll never find the value of who he is if you're hanging on to something he's told you to let go of. So some of you are saying, give me wisdom and direction. And God says, I don't want to do that. I want to give you me. I want to give you me. See, that's the first love reality is when we say, Jesus, I just want you. I'm not coming to ask for something. I'm just, I'm just here. Here I am. I, look, can we just encounter each other? Can we just have some pillow talk and connect our hearts again? Can we just hit pause on the world and just be me and you for a time? Because I never want to lose your heart. I never want to just be in the house as partners. I want to be in covenant and marriage with you, Jesus. Would you bow your heads, Lord? We just love you. That humility creates a space, a womb for God to fill. That you're preparing a bride that's going to be ready for her groom without spot or blemish. It's not going to happen with rules and order. It's going to happen when we conversate and we know what moves your heart. What would happen if we made room for you, God? What would happen, God, if we asked you to fill every single place in our heart? (laughs) What would happen? I don't know, but I really want to find out. (laughs) God, open our hearts. Open our lives. Open our minds to the one thing reality. That our request to be that we could never have to leave and that we could gaze on your beauty all of our life. We need you, Lord. Jesus' name. I'm just going to open these altars up. And we're just going to make this a place of prayer. If your prayer is you want, you want to bring God, maybe you need to bring him back to the one thing. You've let some things get in the way. Maybe it's preemptive. He is your one thing, but you just want to spend some time with his presence. Just reorchestrate some things. These altars are open. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.